Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Standard Age podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. This podcast has been a wonderful supplement to my apparel brand, Standard H, which serves up elevated casual automotive and travel-inspired apparel and accessories to you discerning car and watch lovers. It's been a blast recording these episodes, and if you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. Our recently revamped website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will then receive offers no one else is privy to, and I can promise it'll be well worth your while. Just hit pause real quick and hop over to standard-h.com to sign up. We'll be here waiting for you to hit play when you return. Watch collecting is often described as a journey, and along these roads of exploration, you may encounter independently owned brands you've never heard of creating some of the most incredible timepieces. If you're in search of these brands, look no further than Passion Fine Jewelry, owned by former Standard Age podcast guest Tim Jackson. Offering incredible timepieces as well as phenomenal customer service, Passion Fine Jewelry is California's largest independent watch dealer located right here in Solana Beach, just north of San Diego. There you will find Roger Smith, Gronfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, Roman Gauthier, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as a Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off their entire online shop. Now let's get to the show. I can't stress how wonderful the world of watches has been and the people I've met through the hobby. Today's guest has become a great friend over the years, and I love any opportunity I can get to hang out with him and at the very least talk to him. James Lambden is a big personality, usually comprised of a big smile, fun energy, and never short of an opinion, and I absolutely adore that about him. We share a love for Aloha shirts so it's always great knowing I have a botanical brother from another mother on the East Coast. The watch journey is something many of you are familiar with, but I'd like to explore people's car journeys as well. A couple of months ago, I reached out to James and asked if he'd want to come back on the show and just talk about cars. He quickly replied with an emphatic yes, and well, here we are. Today's episode is nothing more than a fun catch-up session with a wander through the list of cars James has owned, as well as the ones he still garages today. And if you lived in the 80s, be prepared for some significant standouts from television. I'm so thankful for his friendship, and if you haven't heard episode number 8, check that out after this as I'm confident you'll enjoy it. For now, here's the most recent conversation I've had with James, which also includes his latest Doxa release. I'm your host, Wesley Smith. And you're listening to the Standard H podcast. How's it going, man? Uh, it's it is going, brother. How are you? I'm doing well, man. There's um, lots cooking. Uh, been super busy. 
uh all positive stuff um podcasts still going um new products coming what else is cooking travel lots of travel um yeah, outside of that where are you going well my wife and i celebrated a month early uh our three-year anniversary and went to hawaii that's already been two and a half three weeks now that i've been back um I leave tomorrow actually to go to North Carolina to see my parents for the first time in two and a half years. So that's cool. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. um, I'm trying to think of where else. And I mean, we've got a couple weddings coming up. We're going to go to Napa for a weekend. Um, Cabo in July, just like random stuff with friends and weddings and trying to breathe. <laughs> How about you? Yeah. Uh, I've had that had my head down for the last couple months yeah the last year and a half i don't know um it's same difference <laughs> pretty pretty much it's been uh you know we just closed out our fiscal year so it was a sprint to the finish but uh amazing things and we just started our new fiscal year so we're you know right back doing it it's like uh, didn't i just leave this party <laughs> but <laughs> yeah we've been uh we've had a lot of cool stuff going on and we have a lot more uh coming soon so yeah, what is all this cool awesome. stuff on the shelf behind you? This is like all this cool tchotchkes. You know, it's funny. My wife calls my office uh, the museum. Um, and so directly to my left is where a lot of the books and then other photos are on the wall in like that random smattering order. Behind me is just all kinds of stuff. Like I got that Jaguar sort of model XK something or another. I like found that on the street. XK120. Yeah, it's like early, early XKs. Uh, found that on the street in Portland, Oregon. Um, Just on the street. Well, it's like a uh, kind of yeah. It's like this completely unassuming store that sells like. I mean, I guess it's an antique shop, but it was like. I, I feel like it was a hole in the wall. Like you, you had to go inside to really understand what the place was. Like you wouldn't have known from the street, kind of thing. Um, and then. Let's see, a couple of hats behind me, uh, Pinehurst. I think I got a couple of guys to sign that back in, I think, 2005 for the U.S. Open. That's actually a Boston Red Sox hat with, like, Wade Boggs autograph on it and stuff. Uh, so old, old school. Obviously, the Ferrari model here. Mario Andretti autographed that for me. This is a Michael Jordan mug from 1991 when I was a part of the Air Jordan Flight Club. Uh, <laughs> um, this is uh Travis Barker's drumhead uh from a show from when he played with Plus Forty Four in Atlanta. So then I got the whole band to sign it when I moved to L.A. and they did a meetup at Best Buy. <laughs> um, former Standard Age podcast guest Mike Weddington, who's the former nineteen ninety five world champ of wakeboarding, who's a buddy of mine, he signed this for me back in like ninety six or whenever that was. And then a bunch of models and stuff. Love it. I love it. Yeah. And then, of course, like you've been in, you've been in my office, you know, it's just like, just, yeah, it's similar. Yeah. Everything has a story. And like, that's why I can't throw anything away. Right. Exactly. It's not that I'm a hoarder. I'm a curator. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These have been personally selected by yours truly, and they have stories and they're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why basically that's why my office looks like my apartment because I just ran out of room. 
Right, right. Well, and then throw in the fact that we spend so much time in these places, you know? I do spend quite a bit of time here. Yeah. So these are new offices. For those who don't know, you've had a few different offices. The one you're in now is in the same building, just what, one or two floors up or something? No. So I feel like every time we talk, I've, I've, there's always like a, a fun office building story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't keep it straight. No, it's fine. Last time we did this, we had just moved down to the second floor down, down from the 11th floor in our old building because the elevator kept lighting on fire. Um, we, we have actually moved into a totally new building now, a few blocks up on 57th Street. So, you know, we're keeping the same sort of um, vibe. It's, it's a by appointment boutique. We have all of our offices here, our operations, photography studio, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's massively upgraded. So we have a full bar. We have a, a much larger boutique area. We have conference rooms that we use for other components of the watches of Switzerland business. Uh, and yeah, so we're, we're a few, we're actually in the same building as Hamaker Schlemmer. I don't know if you remember Hamaker Schlemmer. I thought they had gone out of business with like, uh, you know, Brookstone and sharper image sort of things. And that it was all just like in sky mall now, but <laughs> right, no, right. Hamaker ha Schlemmer is, is still a thing. They got massage chairs and the whole bit. Oh yeah, my goal is to buy one tchotchke from them every year, and until the eventually we get to this uh, orca-shaped personal mini sub that's hanging up from the ceiling, <laughs> so we just move the whole Hamaker Schlemmer store, you know, to the uh, to the to the top floor. But yeah, we've been here actually for just over a year now. Um, admittedly, it took months and months to get some of the final bits and finishing pieces because of the, uh, the supply chain shortages and furniture and uh, some of the mill work that we had done, glass cases, things like that for the watches, right. but it's done. And, um, you know, I capped it off with the final touch. We got a, a, a vintage replica four player X-Men arcade game. We've got some neon art. We had a, a highball machine installed by our friends at the Glen Rothes. I have, um, I have, I have uh, very fortunately taken part in pulling that handle, I believe. Or you pulled the handle, but I took the sips, and it was delicious. That's right. You did, you did get to fully experience that. Right. Yeah, it was delicious, man. Yeah, the offices are beautiful. I think you had some version of a soft opening or opening party back in October when I was in the city. Which is hard to believe that was seven months ago. I know, right? It, it was how it really was, wasn't it? Yeah. Time has no meaning anymore, especially uh, <laughs> if you're in the business of uh, buying and selling wristwatches. You know, time has right. nothing to do with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of storytelling, exactly. Right. Uh, I think we were celebrating the fact that we finally got locks for our display cases so we could have people in the show. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, no, that that was when we sort of formally opened the doors. So we have been, you know, sort of quote unquote open for business. Uh, we were open for business the whole time, of course, but um, sure. we were fully set up to, to entertain. And so we've been doing, yeah, we've been doing a lot of neat stuff uh, these last six months. And we do uh, monthly or in some cases, a few times a month, whiskey tastings for, for clients and for prospective clients and for, you know, anybody who just wants to stop by and wet their whistle. That's awesome. And we're actually gearing up. I can't talk about it yet, but uh, we're gearing up for a, a really cool first of its kind ever exhibition in the 
let's say vintage timekeeping department, but I'm not going to get any more specific than that. Okay. When, when does that release? About a month from now. And we'll be running it through the summer. I had to make room in the office. Okay. I was going to say get moved out. Okay. So it sounds like a statue or something, but uh, okay. We'll leave it be Um, like an Oris bear, but you know, the, the precursor (laughs) to that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's exact. That's what it is. It is a, it's a horological mascot uh, exhibition of bears and other watch brand um, mascots. Yeah. That's what it is. (laughs) It's like a live Cartier Panther. (laughs) It's, It's made of bits of real Panther. Okay, cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's hilarious, man. Well, I'll be honest. Like I have not really prepped for this show one bit just due to the fact that you you and I are good friends and I didn't really feel the need to, um, are we recording? Uh, we have been. Yeah. I'm putting all this in here. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Including my Travis Barker drumhead talk. Uh, if that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, there's no video though, right? I, I, sh- I shouldn't like go put no, it on a nicer shirt. No. All right. So yeah, just I've got back. a whole closet full of Aloha shirts. I could go pick. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Since I last hosted you though, you've had a big announcement with Watches of Switzerland. Yeah. Um, do you want to glaze over that real quick for those that didn't know that you're not a part of them, which would probably be all of like three people? Yeah, uh, it's yeah, exactly. Uh, we so we started working with uh, brick and mortar retailers a number of years ago to basically put curated collections of wristwatches into uh, well-known and well-regarded uh, watch and jewelry stores around the country, and that ultimately led to launching into a partnership with Watches of Switzerland when they opened their New York City flagship store in Soho in 2018. And uh, we saw a tremendous performance out of that store. The salespeople there um, really grew quite adept to talking about our, our pre-owned and vintage pieces very quickly. And of course, there's a ravenous appetite for these cool things uh, in the United States and particularly in New York City. Mm-hmm. So it became um, a very high performing brand because that's really what it was. We were a vendor of a brand of curated watches. Um, and that led to eventually uh, the Watches of Switzerland executive team reached out to us and said, this is going very well. Would you like to uh, consider coming on board? And it was, it was really, it was a perfect timing for us. It was not something I had originally planned on. This happened in the middle of the pandemic when no one was quite sure where things were going, but things were still cranking with them. And they basically gave us a promise of, of resources and support to keep doing the stuff that we love doing. And you know, I've, I have said this a couple of times recently, so I'll keep it brief, but it doesn't always go terribly well when, uh, you know, a small startup entrepreneurial sort like myself gets uh, snatched up by a large multinational uh, corporation. But yeah. the leadership at, at Watches of Switzerland has really empowered me to do what I want to do, um, to, to learn from them, but also to uh, them to how we've done business to uh their retail work and it's it's awesome plus we have we just have uh more resources to go in and find these great watches so our brand has evolved to cover uh, so pre-owned segment as well as vintage for which we've probably been best known yeah but um we're actually selling more of the you know quote unquote you know real vintage watches 
Uh, it's just that our the percentages of, of pre-owned are, are much larger. So they, they look like it's much less, but it's actually considerably more. Oh, that's cool. That's great. Um, yeah, no, thanks. Now we're in, uh, yeah, of course. We're, we're now in 10 uh, points of sale around the country. And, and uh, we also launched a new website. Plus our, our watches are now available on watchesofswitzerland.com and on mayors.com. Mayors being a brand that uh, we own in Florida. So it's, it's cool because you get to get hands-on with analog shift watches in places other than, you know, our dope midtown offices. Yeah. If you're not up for the, um, the handle poured highball, then, you know, there are other avenues. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. There's a secret handshake. You got to give at any of the stores. If you walk in, it's like a, it's a very complex thing. We can't, I can't explain it, but you know, if, it's like a wink and a nod and some like finger tickling. And then all of a sudden you, you can get a highball. Yeah. I have the code to that elevator, so it's cool. I can just get up there. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I wanted I wanted you to come back on because, like, I just we're both fans of cars, and you're a huge car guy, and I, I really wanted to bring you on to to primarily just chat, you know, automotive stuff and kind of like your automotive journey, just due to the fact that, like, yes, people know that James Lambden is a, a car owner and lover, but you know, like, what what was the first car that you sort of fell in love with, even as a kid? DeLorean. Yeah. Back to the future. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think that had to be it. I mean, I, I, my parents, uh, had some pretty neat cars when I was growing up. My dad had a 19, I think it was 83 or 84 FJ 60. Oh, cool. Land, Land Cruiser. It was a Brown. My, my parents called it the Brown box. And, um, I have many memories of you know, being strapped into one of those kid seats, you know, in the front. Yeah. And, you know, just tooling around and off-roading with my dad in this Land Cruiser, you know, the, the shifter was as long as, as, uh, you know, his leg. And I think he had a CB radio, you know, mounted to the, to the dashboard. I remember him calling the police once on it to like, uh, have some guy who was recklessly driving, you know, put away. Um, and we, we would, yeah, we would, go through fields to avoid traffic jams and you know so on and so forth it was it was the 80s you could get away with shit like that yeah um and then you know i came home from the hospital in a 76 or 77 320i okay there was always like a bmw thing always always pre-owned always at least one or two generations old but um that led to any number of other bmws and a few mercedes and land rovers and other things like that which were always around, but with the possible exception of, of the Batmobile, whatever Batmobile that meant at the time, I think the first real car that I really ever uh, that fell in love with was a, a DeLorean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I um, I only knew it obviously from from the movie. Growing up in like, you know, Cary, North Carolina, there was certainly no DeLorean around. Not, uh, n- not all, also not in White River Junction, Vermont, to be right, clear. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't see my first DeLorean in White River Junction, Vermont, until I was sixteen or seventeen years old. Yeah, so like, yeah, it's funny because I, I, I even, I try to think of like the first car that I even liked as a kid, and it was either one from like you know a Ferrari Testarossa poster that may or may not have been on my wall, or it was like a, you know. Like my neighbor had a, had a Trans Am. I remember when I was like four years old, three years old, I would go to the top of my driveway and like wave to him by every day. Cause I was like obsessed with this car. 
The Trans like, Yeah, with the big, the, with the uh, screaming chicken on the hood. Yeah, so like I would, I would like run to the top of my driveway just to like wave at him goodbye because I was like, that <laughs> well, that's car basically so cool. the Batmobile to a four-year-old. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was black with a gold bird on the front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I had a little toy Jeep with that was like the Golden Eagle Jeep. It was yeah. like a little. It might have actually been a like a toy from the Dukes of Hazard TV show. Totally. Um, because it was a it was a little white Jeep that had the the eagle on the on the hood. I mean, that was just a better time for car design. I remember actually. Come to think of it, it's possible that my love for Jeeps started before DeLorean because MacGyver. Oh yeah, a CJ six or a seven. And I loved MacGyver. It was like my favorite. It was one of several, you know, TV shows that my parents let me watch. My yes, parents were really weird with that. They wouldn't let me watch anything violent. Like they wouldn't let me watch. Uh, a Team? Did you watch A Team? Not till later. I did, but I was probably in middle school by, by that time. You know, so the thing was that they wouldn't let me watch GI Joe because it was about war. Right. You know, and they they never actually stopped to look at it. And realize that no one ever died and you know if a plane blew up like they'd still take the time to animate like the character like the you know parachuting to safety sure um and of course they, they ended every every episode with like a public service announcement yeah like a lesson yeah <laughs> yeah like you share your lunch money or help a little old lady cross the street like you know uh the more you know kind of things but they would let me watch Miami Vice, which, you know, of course, was filled with sex and murder and rape and drug use. Yeah. Because they, I, I think I think they thought it was, uh, you know, culturally significant at the time, which I think explains a lot. Um, MacGyver, they liked because he hated guns. Right. And so my parents being these sort of Vermont hippies, they um, they that was. All. But then they let me watch Airwolf. Yeah, I loved that show. Yeah, that was that was probably my number one because all I wanted to do until I was sixteen was was fly helicopters, and then you know it, it, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And then I found out that I was too blind to do it. And you know, oh, back no. then, you know, you needed corrective. Uh, the military wouldn't accept corrective lenses for aviators, right? Or even or laser surgery or whatever. Um, so that the, my dreams were dashed when I went to go get my, my learner's permit because they're like, "Oh, kid, you're blind. You need glasses." <laughs> I was like, "No." Uh, but yeah, oh, Airwolf man. was the first, at least the first episode of Airwolf was, I mean, it was very, very violent. <laughs> so. Well, I just remember like those intros, they were so complex and had to have been just a mountain of cash to make. You know what I mean? Oh, the digital like things. It was all like grids and well, just like all so 80s that it hurts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I feel like just any introduction sequence to any 80s show was probably bigger than any budget today, like for most shows, period, for a whole season. Well, you crazy. had to get you had to get the audience hooked right at the beginning. So it was and all the soundtracks from all those great 80s shows were all done by Mike Post. Uh, and he was the man. And they all they all sound a little similar, but you know, Magnum and Airwolf and MacGyver and um well, I mean, this was was Michael Mann and and all of that, but they all sort of have that. I mean, it's it, it's so eighties and it's awesome. Yeah. Wait, what what was the car? There was a, wasn't there a white Testarossa in Miami Vice? But then there was another white Ferrari. I thought. Well, so they they had two Ferraris in the series. That one was a two seventy five GTB Daytona convertible Spider. Okay, that's the one I think I'm thinking about. 
that was the early one and that was just a replica on a corvette chassis i think and that they actually used okay and then uh and then they had the the cocaine white right tr right yeah i just i knew there was another ferrari and i couldn't for the life of me picture it i yeah that's it yeah 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 every every that's... show in the 80s was about cars and helicopters like if it didn't have a car that was dope night rider uh whatever and and a helicopter if, if you had a helicopter it was always a bell jet ranger like every show had a jet ranger in like the title sequence and that was just part of the jam did you ever watch that show street hawk i think it was with the the motorcycle i know what it is i, I probably saw a couple episodes but I, it wasn't it wasn't something i watched regularly there was another one that was like i would define it as the beach boys become private eyes and it was, it's called Riptide. Oh, I feel like I've, I may have watched. Okay. So that was like my street hawk for you. Like, I think I saw that yeah, once. And they, they had this helicopter again with the helicopters <laughs> that, that, you know, they traveled around wherever they were doing this PI stuff, California, Hawaii, Florida, whatever it was. Um, and it was an old Sikorsky H76, like Navy chopper. Yeah. like the ones that they used in the Gemini missions, but they painted it pink and put a smiley face on the front. And I think they called it like the screaming Mimi or something. And so they would just like, they would just jet around in, in this pink helicopter yeah. in their Aloha shirt solving crimes. It was amazing. There had to have been cocaine involved on both sides of the, of the, uh, of the, of the camera. I'm sure. I mean, dude, if, if your helicopter's smiling, like there's Coke involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fair. It's fair. But, so, you know, I think the DeLorean, the DeLorean really was it. And I actually remember as we're talking about this, I remember the first time I actually saw one. Yeah. And I can, I can tell you exactly where it was. It was in 1989. My grandparents brought me to see Batman Returns at a, at a shopping mall in Princeton, New Jersey, where okay. they lived at the time. And there it was a lot, a DeLorean. In a mall parking lot, no less. In a, in, a, in a shopping mall parking lot in New Jersey, which I'm pretty sure is where DeLoreans were meant to live. Right. <laughs> yeah. Man, it's such a shame, that whole story. That, that, sh that could have been just, in a, well, it makes for a good story. But what was, your, what was your first car? I think I asked you this in the previous. Yeah, you did. But I, I'm always happy to talk about it. It, it was a, it's an E28 BMW 5 Series. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's five, right. Yeah, an 87 535 IS. Uh, and you still have that car, right? I do. I do. It's been yeah. in long-term storage. It definitely needs some TLC. And now that my other uh, car restoration project is is nearing an end, I will think about putting that one in next. But I, I actually, I can't bring myself to bring that car to New York. It's not the most precious or most valuable thing I have, but I just don't want her to live in the city. Like that car for me was an escape in the back roads of new England. Um, you know, I road tripped that car everywhere. I put, I don't know the, the odometer kicked out years and years ago and I have no idea what the true mileage is and I don't care. I'm never going to sell it. Right. But I think I got it with probably 90,000 miles on it. And I, I mean, I drove it 130,000 miles before the odometer broke. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's what's crazy about those old those old BMWs. They just ran forever. I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I don't know anybody with a, a, a real modern BMW that's put that kind of mileage on it. So I would like to think they still can do that. But like those older ones, man, they just ran forever. The big six um, was pretty much indestructible motor. 
The only real weak point on that car was the center bearing, which uh, BMW calls a guibo. Okay. And it's basically, it's a rubber joint in the drive shaft assembly and they would get worn and then you'd get this severe drive shaft vibration. Um, I replaced, I don't know how many of those, but like, you know, if you have any tools and a jack, you can get under there and do it yourself in, you know, 30 minutes. Easy. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's nice. You don't have to like hook it up to a computer like you would today. <laughs> now that car actually had OBD two. Um, but it also had, it was, you know, from that era where it had the little check control computer in the car. Okay. Every time you'd get in, you could, you could push a little button next to the, uh, right above the rear view mirror. And it would like check the, the fluid levels and wiper fluid and brake lights and you know, all that. Oh, wow. So it's kind of ahead of its time. It seems to be clear. It's just like a red, it was just like a red led that would come on if, if it was working and then, right. and then you'd, you know, let go and it would go out. And if it stayed on, you had a problem. <laughs> it was awesome. And of course it was also from the era of the guilt meter, you know, where it, it had, you had your tack and then in the tack, you had this other sweeping gauge that would uh, decrease the more throttle you put in to show your gas mileage, you know, disappearing. Yeah. 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 I, I, so my grandparents, I learned to drive uh, manual on my grandfather's, well, it was my grandfather's five series that was handed down to my uncle. So my uncle taught me how to drive stick in an old five series BMW. And, and it had the same thing you're talking about, which was just hilarious. Yeah. I love that car. I, I, you know, I still have it. It does need some, some work. It it's um, it's been neglected. I put it in, in storage basically when I moved to New York, which was, 16 years ago. Wow. Almost. And for the first few years, it wasn't in deep storage and I'd go home and drive it and so on and so forth. But eventually it was just like, all right, I got to put this thing away. Yeah. Taking up room. My parents are, my parents are like going to back into it in the garage or something like that. So uh, I put it in a barn and uh, that was that. What, what was the first car that you got while living in New York? Ooh. Um, well, so when I first moved to New York, I worked for Mini Cooper, which I think we right. talked about yep. um, the first time, which was a real blast. And so I had uh, access to, to company cars all the time. But I ended up, I think my, maybe my third year in the city, even though I had a car anytime I wanted one, Right. I, I actually bought my friend's 1992 E36 325 sedan. Love it. And that car was gray over black. It had some cool aftermarket wheels on it. I don't remember what they were. It had a some kind of cool exhaust system that sounded great. It was thick. And it he had gotten it when we were in college together in Massachusetts, and it was in really good shape. And by the time he wanted to let it go. He wanted to give it to me for nothing. So that, that should explain the condition of the car at the time. But I thought, perfect. I couldn't afford a parking garage. So I'll just leave this thing on the street and not care. Right. And, and the city was just not kind to it. Like the, you know, mm. the headliner just sort of was coming apart. The sunroof didn't work. Um, it mechanically was strong, but you know, the, uh, needed a radiator, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. So I, you know, I sank a bunch of money into this thing and eventually I realized it was just not a good idea. So I put it on Craigslist or something. And then, you know, somebody 
made me an offer and then showed up with half the cash and a bad check. And so I, I like, it was, it was ugly. And I, you know, wanted to take them to small claims court and all this sh shit, but uh, whatever. And then, and then years later, uh, I, I got the Porsche, the green car, the 912, and I had parked it on the street to go have dinner. One night I came out, it was gone oh, no. to make a long story short. It had been seized by the city, um, uh, marshal service because it was tied to my old registration for the BMW, which this, you know, this criminal had restuck my old registration sticker in the window after I tore it out. Oh my God. Um, then proceeded to rack up like thousands of dollars in parking violations for which I was now liable for oh fortunately God. a judge <clears throat> looked favorably on, on me. And I, I got away at, uh, cause I, I had documented the sale and the, I'd surrendered the license plates. So the mistake I made is I took the registration sticker out the window, crumpled it up and like threw it in the ashtray or something. And she just like stuck it back in. Oh, that's crazy, man. And that also reminds me, like, I don't remember the last time I saw a droopy headliner, but like, it's such a distinct look <laughs> and, and, and texture even like how thin that fabric used to be. And you would just like, you would just keep pushing it up. And if your windows were down, it's just like beating you in the head, you know, like, I just like, yeah, God, that is a distinct memory. That gluey insulation stuff. Yeah gluey insulation stuff on the other side of it that would right. come through. And it was like, you know, it was like raining, like, like mattress foam on you in little teeny pieces. It's horrible. The, you know, the E36, the chassis was phenomenal. It, mm -hmm. That car was, was liquid putty. You could, you could put it sideways up on, a, on an on-ramp and know exactly where it was going to go. Yeah. Very, very good handling car, but it was from the era where everything was meant to be recyclable and, and, you know, bravo to BMW for sort of pioneering uh, recyclable car technology and material usage. But the reality was that the lifespan of these products and the glues and adhesives and shit that they used to hold these cars together was, was not great. And so there's nothing that takes the miracle of sliding a car up, a, uh, up a ramp onto the interstate uh, as much as like the entire door panel popping off mid apex, you know, or putting a quarter into the change dispenser and then the whole fucking thing exploding and coins going everywhere, you know, just stuff like that. It was, it, I think the best E36 is a track prepped E36 where you take all of that out. Stripped out. Yeah. These E36 M3s are going for bananas money right now. I can tell you with certainty, they are not worth it. Yeah, or, or or they're just shoddy. Yeah, I was going to say, or they're just not put together. <laughs> That's so crazy, man. So, all right. I would very happily, I'd very happily own another one as a track car, but that's it. Right, right, sure. So you had already gotten your 912 at that point. So what year is this? Yeah, I think it was 2011. But actually the story of my relationship with that car goes back a little further. I, I moved to New York in 2006 and started working uh, for BMW North America on the Mini Cooper brand, which was a lot of fun. And very quickly, I found out who the other people, you know, at my job who were real car people were. And the, he was then the assistant pre-owned sales manager for BMW, 
turned out to be the, you know, the vintage car guy there. So we hit it off right away. He had all kinds of neat stuff. He had old Bentley. Uh, he had a, he had a TR at one point that he drive to the, to the office. It was great. Whoa. We were just bullshitting over, over coffee or lunch one day. And he was just like, so, you know, what kind of cars do you, do you want? What kind of cars have you had? And um, I mentioned to him, I always wanted a 912. He's like, that's interesting. Why uh, 912, not a 911? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I, I grew up in a lower middle-class family and, you know, we always had nice cars and we, we always serviced them at this amazing shop um, called Northern Motorsport in Wilder, Vermont. And these guys, you know, they'd have a, a, a yard full of old rusty Volkswagen Foxes and, and defunct broken electronic Land Rovers and then a Unimog and then a bunch of E30s in for belt service. And then also one of the world's most prestigious um, Bugatti collections. Oh, whoa. Also that. Yeah. And if you owned a Ferrari north of like the Connecticut state line, you probably had it serviced at Northern Motorsport. These guys were absolute pros. Uh, Mike and Jeff Sack. I don't know if you're listening, but you guys taught me so much at a young age and you let me uh, run around your shop from a young age, literally probably in diapers, just like playing with these old cars. And that was, you know, sort of defined who I was. Anyway, there was this light blue 912 that they took, that they looked after. And I remember, you know, a little bit older, maybe middle school asking my dad about this car. And, um, and he explained to me that it was like a Porsche that I, you know, I might be able to afford someday. Yeah. Because it didn't have a 911 motor. And that just stuck with me. I don't know. I mean, I knew what a 911 was by the time I had my driver's license, obviously. Yeah. But I always sort of thought the 912 was cool. So that's what I wanted. And I told this guy I worked with that that's what I wanted. And he said, well, that's really interesting because I have one. Of course he does. <laughs> yeah. He said, I restored this car like 10 years ago and it's been in my barn. Uh, I did it for a client who then paid me for another job with this car. I said, no kidding. He's like, you want to see it? Maybe would you like to buy it? And I'm like, Oh, maybe. And here I am. I'm 22 years old. I've just moved to New York City. You know, I'm making more money than I ever had, but I certainly have no business buying a vintage Porsche and trying to garage it. But I convinced myself that I could. So I went upstate with him to his house. We pulled this thing out of the barn and look, it hadn't aged terribly well. It was a little rusty at the bottom of the doors, but ran and drove and looked amazing. Sure. He gave me a price. This is again back in like 2006, 2007, and I said sold. Let's let's do it. And then it turned out that the guy he had taken it from uh, pay, from in, as a form of payment had never given him the title. So he went to go get the title, and then that guy decided all of a sudden he wanted the car. Oh man! He came back to me. He said, "I'm so sorry, but I didn't have the title, and unfortunately, my client wants to keep the car, so I I can't sell it to you. I'm so sorry." And I'm like almost relieved at this point because I had no business <laughs> buying it, but also totally devastated. Right. Anyway, years go by three, four years go by. I put, you know, this, this guy, Jay all the time about cars. And we never brought up the Porsche again, to be honest with you. Right. Until one day he walked into my office and there was just something different on his face. And it could have been a million things could have been, you know, actual work that he had to talk to me about, right. but of course not. It was, it was car stuff. And, he walks over and he just says, guess what? And I don't know what it was, but I just said, the Porsche's back. He said, the Porsche's back. And this time I have the title. And I said, no kidding. 
you want to sell it? He said, yes. And you're the first person I'm talking to. How much was it? Well, I want it. He's like, it was the same price. He, he charged me the same price it was 10 grand. Holy shit. This is, this is a long time ago, but it was 10,000 bucks. And I was like, okay, let's do this thing. I, anyway, we get it back. Turned out that the, uh, the original owner who had been you know looking after it for the last few years still mm-hmm. had driven it into something in his garage. So the front bumper was sort of messed up uh, and it was pissing oil. And Jay being a really good guy said, well, I promised you a Porsche 912, not like 92% of a 912. So I'll tell you what, I'll fix the front bumper and get it resprayed. And I'll take $2,500 off so you can go deal with the oil leak. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is why I have this vintage car guys. Like, you know, I, I would love to tell you that I made a money and I could have bought this beautiful thing all these years ago for a top dollar. I paid nothing for this thing. Right. Um, and, and I drove the shit out of it after I, you know, put five grand into the motor to try and make it stop pissing oil, which it never actually quite did. Got it. Until, and then I started analog shift and I knew I had to put my priorities elsewhere. So it went into storage and until about five years ago. And that's when I took it out and began, you know, this, uh, long restoration process. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so crazy. Cause that's probably like, I don't know. I, I can never remember when I met you. It was, it was at least five years ago, but, um, Oh, it, definitely. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. But since then though, like you've, okay. So I think it's more like seven or eight. Probably. Yeah. 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 That sounds yeah more accurate. What is, uh, so, so when does the, the M5 come into the picture? Were there cars, were there cars between those two? Not really, because, okay. you know, I was li- I was living in New York in my second stint in New York. So I had, I had done the car thing. I left for about six months, came back and started analog shift. And um, I was pretty much head down on that. I was also doing some automotive writing. Mm-hmm. And that's when I you know started getting access to uh, press fleet cars and, and doing some of the track stuff that I, uh, have been fortunate enough to do with, with all these cool brands and, and all sorts of fast, modern metal. And, um, so the M five came about because my, uh, I, I started getting to the point where I wanted to have a car again and I, I wanted to get something, um, to shoot back and forth from New Jersey where my, where my ex uh, her family lived. Okay. And so my justification for like the relationship um, going smoothly was to like, well, I'll get a car that I want so that we can go see your family more often. That's how I sort of sold. Uh, so I'm a king of justification. Oh yeah. Yeah. We all are. We work. I mean, you work in watches. I am a watch enthusiast. Thus we can rationalize damn near anything, <laughs> anything, anything. If, if you need help, Justifying something, give me a call. I'll talk you into it. Yeah, and then we're salespeople at the, at, the, at, at like to the bone. So then it's like, well, a, yeah, but mostly it's just selling stuff to myself. What? Uh, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Taking our own medicine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so actually, I started looking at uh, M coops. Uh, the you know the uh, the clown shoes which I've oh, always liked. God, I love um, that car. I've still still never owned one. I've got a bunch of friends with them. They're a blast to drive. I've I've had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in them, um, and that's what I wanted because I thought, all right, small two doors, perfect, great. And I start shopping for one, 
And I, to be clear, I'd always kept a finger on the M5 market because the E39 M5 is such a special car. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that came out when I was in in college, high, late high school, college, and so it was. You know, it was a dream car for me. And as I'm shopping for M coupes, I start to realize after a few years on the depreciation curve that E39 M5s are starting to come up. Mm. And so I, I didn't, I didn't want to buy it at the bottom. I wanted to know that the bottom had been met, and that they. And so I, I rapidly changed tack, and and I grabbed this this M5, and that must have been about six or seven years ago now. Right. So what what was it about? Uh, you would know better than I would. But what was the breakdown of color from the M Coupe? Because I swear to God, ninety nine percent of them are blue. <laughs> Estoril blue. Yeah. Th- well, th- I don't I don't know what they are. Um, but there is a website that I have discovered that <laughs> that will tell the breakdown. In fact, I know this for a fact because of this website. I'm sure if you you know Google like M Coupe and Roadster resources, you'll find it. But there's exactly one in Impala Brown. Oh whoa. And I always wanted that fucking car because it's so weird looking. Um, and, and so it's like, you know, Estoril Blue, Imola Red, Black, Silver is like most of them. And then yeah. there was like that Phoenix Yellow. There was a couple in Laguna Seca. There was a couple in um, that, what's that like teal color? Oh, right, right. I know the one. It, it, was, like a BM, it was like a BMW individual yeah. color. There was yeah. a few in that. Um, but yeah, I wanted, if I was going to, to be honest with you, uh, Estoril Blue is a dope color. Yeah, totally. And so I, I probably, you know, I actually might not get a coupe. I'll probably someday, I'll probably Roadster because, you know, I'm getting older and want to blow wind in my hair and feel alive again, you know, That's right. my heart yeah. and soul. Well, while we still have hair, let's let the wind blow through it, you know? I get it. Something like that. So, uh, but I like Estoril Blue, and I probably would have been very, very happy with that. Um, Bradley Price from Autodromo had a silver, um, had a silver S52 for a while. I think he let that one go eventually. And I've got another friend, uh, Larry Pipitoni from uh, Grand Army, who had a pair of them. Uh, I think I think they were both S54s, one in Imola and one in black, uh, for a long time, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I love those cars, but when I saw the value proposition and the M5 start to shift, that's when I made my move. And you know, similarly, the color I wanted was was Le Mans blue, and there was really no other choice. The only thing that changed was that I I thought I wanted that black and gray two tone sport interior with the brushed aluminum. Yeah, and and that's what I'd always wanted since I was you know, 16 or or whatever it was when the car came out. And I looked at it with like 30 something year old eyes and realized it was a, like a little bit of a younger man's car. Right. So I ended up buying one with the, the caramel extended Napa and, and the, the wood uh, extended trim, which you've seen the car. You've been in the car. You yeah, know. I've been in the car. It's a beautiful car. It's fun car. It's, it's my favorite M5 of all time, I think. Uh, that one was 400 horsepower, if I'm not mistaken. Stock. Yeah, yeah. What? Um, 394, I think, was the um, official. Yeah. What uh, designation? What was like? What was special about that car? Was it just the time in your life kind of thing, or was there anything else? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the reality is, um, you know, the building analog shift on Instagram probably looked 
pretty glamorous. You know, there's all these amazing watches that I got to handle and, and, um, you know, buy or have consigned and then, and then sell. And I got to wear them and, you know, yeah. do that whole thing. But the reality was I worked like a dog, you know, yeah. and I didn't pay myself virtually anything for, for years, uh, aside from the bare minimum living expenses. Um, and I, you know, I kept a few watches here and there, but I hadn't really done anything to sort of celebrate, uh, what I'd achieved. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess at the end of the day, like, why not celebrate achievements with like your favorite thing? And that's cars, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that, that was very special. And it also was like, I was sort of looking back in time to my like 16 or 17 year old self and being like, Hey man, we did it. Uh, and awesome. that felt, that felt really, really good. And then of course they like doubled in value from then and they've kept going. And, you know, I've had some people like straight up at car shows, just like offer me stupid money for it. And that's nice. But I look at the same thing with the watches and I'm like, I bought this cause I love it. I bought it cause I'm going to drive the shit out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I just, this is where this like collector curator hoarder mentality comes in. Like I, I, I don't want to let go of any of my cars. I just want to keep adding cars and it, I may reach a point where this is not feasible, but I, I, I'm like, I've, I bought my most recent car only like seven months ago. And I'm already looking at another one to add, which would put me at five cars in New York city. Like, are you out of your mind? Wait. Okay. All right. So there's a few things here. I do recall you saying once, and I can't remember when you said it, but it was something along the lines of like, ideally you would have a 12 car garage. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So the, the idea here is to build, you know, this dream complex, you know, upstate somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I'll never be able to buy a house to be clear. Cause I'll never find a house that will match my very specific set of requirements. So you'll, you'll have a garage with a living room. That's what you'll have. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. I, I, and like, that's the plan is that I want to buy uh, some property and then build a big garage with a living apartment above like a two bedroom apartment above the garage. And eventually I'll build a house too. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly it. So I'm thinking it's going to be, it's going to be four bays wide, too deep and too high on the front row. So okay. in theory, that's your 12. And then of course I'd have a portico at the extra, at the house up the hill a little ways where I could like park the, you know, the other car under that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So within what that doesn't count motorcycles. Well, th that's fine because they take little space. I mean, because then you're going to start counting watches, right? Like, so who cares? Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, so, okay. So give me the short list. Not all 12, but like, you know. Oh, I don't know. So the five that I've got, I'd love to hold on to. Okay. I am really, I know. Let's see. I, I was about, a, whenever the Bronco came out, I thought I was going to get that. Mm. Turns out. I, I got my refund on that deposit because uh, the, the part shortages, the wait times, the option limited. And then I finally saw them and, and they're, they're cool looking, but they're actually much bigger than they look in the pictures. And right. I don't think they look as good in real life. The pictures were better than the real life. Whereas the defender, the new defender, I think was the opposite. And I think that is much better in real life on all fronts. And um, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to know some of the people you know, who were really behind that design. And um, I have to say when it's better in real life, uh, that's not a problem with your photography. It's because it's nuanced and brilliant. 
And did we have did we have this conversation already? Did did we already have this conversation? Because that's exactly what I have said since like minute one of seeing either of those cars in person. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to. I mean, no hate on the people who decided to keep their Broncos, but oh, totally. The de- the Defender in real life is exquisite. It's so good. I think what it comes down to is that waistline curve that is that does not come through in the pictures. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. It looks very high tech in the pictures. Yeah. And it is high tech. Yeah. But in real life, that hip curve right beneath the, the window belt line, it's so perfect. And they got it right from the original. Mm-hmm. And that is actually the design element that I think carries the car forward from a legacy standpoint, from a design standpoint. That's it's that line that I now that I associate the the past and the present of the Defender line, not what I think everyone else was looking at was was the headlights or the grill or the taillights or the greenhouse, which are all modernized, rightfully Mm so. Um, But man, that that little that little curvature right under the glass, it's so perfect. And uh, wow, it's good. So that's probably going to come next because uh, I'll need something to, that can get dirty as I go like traipsing around these upstate properties, you know, to find a place to build a garage. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the other cars, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's a perpetually uh, cycling list of, of things. I'd love a British sports car uh, roadster or something. I, I love the Austin Healey 100. That's like, I think that's sort of like perfection bulldog stance, louvered hood and a folding windscreen. I don't know that it gets better than that. Right. You know, there's, I, I still love the E9 BMW coupes, you know, the 2800 CS, the 3.0. Um, I also love the BMW Bavaria, which was the immediate predecessor to the five series line. Right. It's sort of a redundant car in a collection that has two other five series, but I just think they're so, so cool. I love the original two door Range Rovers with, uh, you know, no electronics, you know, long throw shifter crank windows sure. in the front sliding in the back uh wing wing mirrors like i think that those are cool um these are all things that are sort of cycling through and then i'd love a muscle car i've never owned a muscle car huh. i don't know whether that's a mustang or a barracuda or something you know loud and and sort of obnoxiously american in all the great ways right right um what? i love i love a grocer mercedes or a 6.3 I mean, I'm all over the place. And then the other thing is I'm trying to track down my uh, grandfather's 1938 Packard oh. on top of all that. So I, I, it's not going to be hard to fill a 12-car garage except for fiscally. That's the only that's the only hurdle that I have is the money because I'm, I'm not wanting for inspiration. You know, it's interesting you should say the grandfather thing because like, I would love to track down my, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I would love to track down my grandfather's Jeep Cherokee that he gifted me in high school. Like that was my graduation gift as he gave me his Cherokee and it was an 88. And you sold it like an asshole. Yeah. Like an idiot, which is a question I was going to ask you if you've ever been an idiot before. Uh, (laughs) But like for me, I sold it. Many, many times. Well, I sold it because again, pissing oil, like your, your, uh, your car was, but and I just, at, at the time, you know, I just graduated high school. So then I'm like driving this through college. Guess who had no money in college and had to rely on their parents to like help them keep their car running. And my dad was like, hey, uh, 
take a hike. I'm, I'm sick of paying to fix oil leaks. Like, you know what I mean? Like get something else. So that's how that cookie crumbled. But ever since I've wanted it, but man, I am so much more optimistic for you to find a Packard than I am to find a Jeep Cherokee. That's probably either jacked up or it's torn apart and, you know, six foot tall grass in Alabama. Like I have no idea. <laughs> right. Well, I, um, I have very, very fond memories of, of being, you know, preschool aged, elementary school aged. And, um, at the time my, my mom's, uh, parents lived a couple towns over in Vermont. They basically moved there from Massachusetts to help raise me, mm-hmm. um, you know, at that very, very young age, you know, uh, up until sort of mid elementary school, they were my daily daycare, that kind of thing. And, and he had this, you know, this really great old 1938 Packard six convertible, um, and, you know, it didn't go more than about 40 miles an hour, but he would take it out on sunny days in Vermont and pick me up and drop me off in that car. And it was it was very, very magical. And, you know, when they moved back to Massachusetts, they moved back to Cape Cod when I think I was in late elementary school or mid middle school, maybe. And um, they, they built a carriage house on their property just for the Packard. Oh, wow. It was very much a um, part of the family. And it actually... I found out later in life that that was not their original. They had had a, another Packard when they got married and they sold it when they started a family. And then the, the, uh, the children got together for some anniversary and bought them this car. And that was the story of the car. And, you know, it had been with him my whole life. Right. And then um, not to get too much into family politics here, which, you know, can be exciting, but when he passed, it, it sort of went into this, um, purgatory. No one really knew what to do with it. My uncles were really sort of responsible for it. Um, two brothers, the older one had his own toy cars to deal with. And then the younger one really was the guy who looked after the car. Um, and I was 20 years old or 22 years old when, you know, it was right before I moved to New York that he died and it went into a holding pattern and they just left it in the garage for, for a couple of years. And I'd spoken to my grandmother about it. I said, I'd really like the car. I know I live in New York, but my friend in Maine can look after it. I even found a Packard specialist, you know, I was going to take care of it. I wasn't asking to be gifted the car. I was ready to pay for the car. Sure. Um, and my uncle, uh, and I'm just gonna say he's a world-class prick, uh, decided to sell it to somebody else. I wasn't asking for a handout. He refused to sell it to his own family. He decided to sell it to somebody else. And, uh, you know, I just, I'll never understand that motivation. It's just, there's something, there's something wrong there. Yeah. And I didn't speak to him for 10 years um, because of that. And then I got a call. This is probably four or five years ago now. I got a call uh, from my mom saying, you need to call your uncle. He wants to speak to you. And I said, I have nothing to say to him. And she's like, stop being an asshole. I call your uncle. I said, all right. So I call my uncle and he's like, so I sold it to this older guy uh, and he's now passed. And I'd like to uh, see if you'd like to have the car now. And of course I was in much better fiscal situation. And um, I said, okay, well, you know, give me uh, give me his widow's number. I'll give her a call and make an offer. And he said, no, I'm going to handle the sale for her. And it's like red flags start going up. Oh God. He wants a commission. Yeah. And so I said, all right, what's the, what's the number on the car? And he gave me this obnoxiously high number is easily worth twice. It was twice what the car was worth. Right. And, and I said, all right, well, how much did you sell it to them for? And, and he, he honestly told me what he'd sold it for, which was, 
you know, what I thought the car was worth at the time and was prepared to pay. And I said, well, what did they do? Did they like repaint the entire car? Did they put a new engine in it? Like why, why this number? And he just told me it was because, uh, you know, she was still relatively young and needed the money. And I said, that's ridiculous. That's not how objects work. <laughs> no. And, and then I came back and I said, listen, I'll pay you basically 50, 50% more than the car's worth, not a hundred percent more than the car's worth. Cause I want my grandfather's car. Sure. And he said, uh, no, eat, eat shit. And I said, fine. And I still haven't talked to him in you know five or six years now, <laughs> but I was able to track, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, he didn't have a buyer for the car. So it went to a consignment lot that dealt in, in specialty cars in Massachusetts and it sold. And I know what the listed price was. And I know there was a commission and they got less for it than I offered. So frustrating. Once, once again, I'm just like, I have to throw my hands up and say, what, what's the thought process here? Yeah. And, um, I will never, ever understand that. But, uh, the good news is I think that the average age of somebody collecting a 1938 Packard is like 137 years old. So, <laughs> Chances are it'll show up again uh, and I'll be able to grab it. And I, at this point, I'll pay any price. I just don't want to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding, man. Well, I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's awful. All right. So when were you an idiot? Like when, when did, what did you sell that you regret selling? Well, I mean, I crashed a lot of cars. Oh, okay. So like totaled, got rid of them type of deal? Oh, yeah. I, I crashed like three cars uh, and ruined them. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. The first one was, uh, I was 16 years old. I was actually test driving a car from Northern Motorsport. That was the, the mechanic shop. They had this beautiful 87, uh, red 325 IS coupe. Oh, and this is before I sort of took ownership of the five series. And I thought I wanted a red two door sports car. I took it out for a test drive in January and I hit a patch of black ice on the interstate. Oh my God. And put in a guardrail. So that was that was not my finest moment. Um, I was in college and had no money. And I was driving an 87 uh, 4000 Quattro Audi. Uh, but I didn't have enough money for snow tires. <sighs> and I put it in a snowbank, which in itself wasn't a problem. But then I got hit by a pickup truck. So <laughs> that one's gone. And then the probably the single most embarrassing was uh, when I was out of college working, got my first real car loan because everything else was like a few thousand bucks and like I'd borrow money from my dad. Um, I bought a 96 328 IS coupe. It was beautiful. It was a, it's like a one owner car. It had a high mileage, but this guy, this car was immaculate. It was Montreal blue over beige leather. It was a really adult owned car. And I flew all the way out to Littleton, Colorado from Maine to buy this car. My roommate came out with me uh, and we were going to drive it home over like four or five days and take that great American road trip. Yeah. And 13 hours uh, after picking it up in Colorado, I hit a 650 pound black Angus that was standing in the middle of the highway in Wyoming. Uh, and that was the end of that. So those are three stupid car things I've done. That's like running a car into a building. Yeah, it, it fun fact, um cow's eyes do not reflect the way deer do. Okay. I was going 65 miles an hour hand hand on a bible 65 cuz I was tired and it I'd been driving for over 12 hours so I was just on cruise control. I was 30 miles south of uh Devil's Tower where we were going to camp for the night cuz we're 
you know, all super geeks and love close encounters of the third kind. <laughs> and, um, and we're just cruising. I was listening to stick shifts and safety belts by cake and wham, you know, there it is. I saw it, uh, you know, less than a second before I hit it. And, um, fortunately there were no serious injuries for my passengers, but I did, I broke three toes cause I, I smashed the brake pedal so hard. Wow. Yeah. And, um, then, then from then on the BMW nomenclature was a uh, bovine murder weapon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the best part was the, uh, the constabulary showed up and just were convinced that must've been drinking or speeding or, or something. So they like, you know, I'm, I'm in total shock. I just vaporized a cow right. in the middle of the highway. And they're like, they're just like get their tape measures out and start measuring skid marks, yeah. you know, and all of this. And then, um, and then I, I was sort of hobbling around the town of Sundance, Wyoming population, like 19 waiting to get a flight out of there. Uh, and I was, I tried to hitchhike from the town center, which had Wi-Fi uh, back to the, the holiday inn on the outskirts of town, which didn't have Wi-Fi, And so I could like send an email, you know, Right. And I was hitchhiking with my thumb out to try and get back to the, the hotel and a state trooper pulled up and, and like drew his weapon on me. Uh, and I was like, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? I'm, like, I'm trying to get a ride. He's like, what? What's this? And he like put, hold his thumb out like this. I'm like, I'm trying to get a ride. I'm hitchhiking. He's like, is that legal in the state of Wyoming? I'm like, how the fuck should I know? I'm from Maine. And he like holsters his weapons like you, that kid who killed that cow last night. <laughs> oh, my God. No way. Dead serious. Dead serious. <laughs> it was like it was all over town. Like I went to go get like a breakfast burrito at the Sunoco station in town, like the one gas station in town. And the, you know, the the literally the the cashier at the gas station's like, you guys killed that cow last night? <laughs> Farmer John's cow. I'm like, yeah. Population 19. <laughs> I asked the paramedic who at least was kind enough to drive us to get beer afterwards. Um, if this was a common occurrence, and and he actually said, Yeah. So I hit it on the highway, which was not an open range, to be clear. Uh, so the cow should not have been there. Right. But he told me that a few years before, like a whole flock of these guys got out on the interstate. Not the, not the highway, but the interstate right. where people right. are really hauling ass and a bunch of people died. Oh, my God. So, so yeah, crazy. beware if you are if you're driving through Wyoming, like watch out for for cows. <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> is there is there any car like from your childhood that you haven't owned that you could foresee owning one day? Like, would you ever buy a DeLorean, for example? Oh, I'm totally going to buy a DeLorean. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, come on. I have to, right? I'm, I work in, I'm a, I need a time machine. Right, right. I, I kind of feel, yeah. It's. I, I, I don't even know that I have an option in this, Wesley. Like, to be clear, I know. <laughs> I know it's not a great car. I know it's underpowered. I know all the fucking problems, but how could I not have a DeLorean? I mean, of course I'm going to have a DeLorean. I don't know anybody in watches that that car is more appropriate for than you. Thank you. That is a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliment. <laughs> it is. Admittedly, they've gotten really expensive, um, but also DMC is back up and running and is like basically making brand new ones, which I think is cool. Can I see myself spending a hundred grand on a, on a 2023, uh, 1981 spec DeLorean? I cannot. Um, but <laughs> do I want one? Hell to the yes. Yeah. 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 For sure. What, what's a car you think like has aged well, 
Like meaning, like you're surprised by it. Like, do you look back at any cars and be like, man, like I never liked that thing, but now I love it. Oh, that's a great one. I like, I think we'd have to pick a few eras to play with, but the one that jumps into my mind is actually the first generation Audi TT. Oh yeah, man. Bauhaus. I always thought that they looked a little bit like a squashed beetle when they first came out and I wasn't digging it. Um, Plus they were sort of anemic and I'm like, it's like a joke of a sports car. And I don't know if anyone remembers this, but they had a really serious aero problem in the early days. And Whistle. they were flying. They were. Oh, it was lifting. They, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, <laughs> but yeah, Taking but I, 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 I think that they have aged gorgeous. Uh, yeah. I think they're absolutely gorgeous today. And I actually think that the design language that Audi sort of finalized with the TT mm-hmm. has in, has informed the last twenty some odd years of Audi design. Without the TT, we wouldn't have had the R8. We wouldn't have had really any of the, the greats in the last 20 years. So I have a I have a sort of a dream that I'll, I'll be able to you know grab a few of these things with low mileage and nice spec and just sit on them because I think someday they might go places. And sure, they've come up a little bit, but I, they're really special cars, I think, from a design I was, standpoint. I was just about to say that they're really special. And actually... I think it was that first iteration that was still on the lots when I was selling Audis at the time. Cause I remember there were three engine options. There was the, you could get a manual, I think it was 180 horsepower. Then it bumped up to a 225, and that's where it gave you your dual exhaust. And then there was a 250 horsepower option uh, that I think was only available in DSG or, or whatever the, the, the electronic shifting was at the time. Um, and I just, I love driving that 225 to lunch. You know what I mean? Like they were just so much fun. Put the, the top down, uh, you know, the coupes are great, right? But like, yeah, the visibility was actually kind of shit, you know, like that's why you get the convertible. Cause like you could actually see over your shoulder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think that those, um, even those 1.8 T's, you know, with the, with the stick shift, Remember they had that like Le Mans edition with the baseball leather? Beautiful. I'd love to have one of those in silver. Totally. And look at it. I think it's an art piece today. Yeah. Um, other cars that have aged well. Let's let's like pick it pick a different era. Yeah, let's go 80s. What's an 80s car? Well, so I like I like 80s cars. I don't know what everyone's on about the 80s being a bad design uh decade. I think it's fantastic. Um I would say that my appreciation for, you know, 80s Cadillacs and so on has actually come up a lot. Um, actually, what was I watching? I'm watching Thanks. Gaslit on on uh, HP, on Amazon Prime with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. Okay, haven't seen it. It's, it's about it's about the Watergate scandal. So there's a lot of um, uh, there's some gratuitous Porsche scenes. So it's it's definitely whoever's uh, whoever's doing the production design is paying attention. But um I got to say like all these seventies cars, but I mean the same thing for eighties cars and in period pieces, like there's, they've got so much more, um, soul, even if it's an eighties econo box, it looks so much more interesting than the stuff on the road today. Totally. Like there's a guy who parks like, a, a roadmaster on my block. Uh, there's a, there's a guy with an LTD 
you know, big square, like police spec LTD in my neighborhood. Totally. I always rubberneck as like he's driving by. I'm like, it's just, it's so much more interesting from a design yeah. standpoint than all of this stuff that all looks exactly the same today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if there's one design, not the car itself, but the design that I think is really cool from the eighties, it's that jumps to mind. It's the AMC Eagle. Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, think about it as all wheel drive station wagon. Yeah. Which is, which is like every car today, you know, right, it's a, right. it's the prototype for the, for every Audi, for yeah, I was gonna say every, it's everything for every Subaru. It's everything I want, right? Like sport wagons, are like my jam. Um, yeah. Oh man, that's cool. And they're like they're kind of muscular because they're always like a little bit too high lifted, and like it's a piece of shit. Let's be very clear. <laughs> yeah. But from a design standpoint, I think it's fucking cool, man. I think that's a cool car. Okay, so after the M5 came something else, which. I kind of knew about, but you hadn't taken delivery of it yet. And this was seven months ago when I saw your office. That's right. I think I, I think I picked it up maybe like a week or two after I saw you. It was like right then. Right. So what, what happened was, you know, this whole getting a place upstate thing started to get into my head. And I started thinking, you know, what I really need is a, is a modern, practical, reliable uh, utility vehicle. Uh, so I started looking at pickup trucks and SUVs and, and the whole thing. And then I bought an Aston Martin Vantage uh, from 2009, which of course is the sensible choice for anyone looking to live that lifestyle. Amazing. Yeah. Look, the Porsche restoration started to feel like it was taking a long time and that's, and, and that's because it was, and that's because, you know, perfection takes time. And uh, right. it was definitely an exercise in, in patience. Um, I thought it would be done by that point, And I was getting really itchy and the M five was um, still definitely doing it for me, but I, I was looking forward to something new to experience. Mm -hmm. And so the Aston Martin was kind of a, an unlikely choice. Um, not because I haven't always wanted one. I mean, you, if you have, if your, you know, heart still beating, I think you'd appreciate this car, you know? Sure. Yeah. They're beautiful. Then there was just like, there was just this, uh, a series of events in my life that um, all came to it. Like the uh, DB5 that was used in the filming of, of GoldenEye was on display at a museum here in New York. Um, and then, you know, the, the No Time to Die movie was coming out. And so the James Bond hype was real. And then I had a, a, a client of mine, a colleague of mine, um, sort of does what I do, but with cars, started talking to me about this V12 Vanquish with a stick shift conversion that he had that he was looking at, at maybe selling. And so I considered that. Incredible. And then I realized like if I sort of went down the Aston Martin rabbit hole and I started seeing them driving around, which is not terribly unusual in midtown Manhattan, but it, it's like somewhat unusual. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I started looking for advantages and I found this car. It's a, it's a 2009 4.7 sport pack. So it's, uh, you know, sort of right in the middle of the production run right after they upgraded the motor. It's got the cool sport package wheels on it. Stick shift, of course, tungsten, uh, silver metallic. Um, beautiful up in spec. Boston and uh, yeah, it's, it's perfect. And it's interesting cause it's got, you know, sort of the same power specifications as the, as the M5, mm -hmm. but it's such a totally different car to drive. And it is, it's so much better looking than me. And I, I, it's like, it tickles me that I get to have this thing. And it was a third, the price of the Porsches I was looking at. Right. The only real problem with this car is that I realized after buying it that I just I simply don't dress nice enough for this car <laughs> and, and my clothes weren't nice enough. You know, I'm, I, and so um, 
I like it inspired me to start looking at new clothes. So I like got a whole new wardrobe and like seven new pairs of shoes that are like more <laughs> Aston Martin appropriate. Um, and, you know, I put it in this uh, really great garage here, the, the paddock uh, NYC garage, P-A-D-D-O-C-K, which is a great way to store, um, you know, collector cars or exotics in New York. And, um, you know, of course, my car is like by far the least expensive thing in there. Um, you know, that's McLarens and Lamborghinis and, and so it's in good hands. Cool exotics. It's in yeah. really good hands and they take care of it for me. And that's great. And it's, I, I don't know, it tickles me to, to have a thing that's that beautiful and that special in my life. It's, it doesn't feel like I'm old and sophisticated enough for that car. Uh, but it's a really, really great to drive. Uh, it's very visceral. It's not very high strung like the M5 is. The M5 is very hard to drive. Um, legally uh because it just wants to do so much more right. whereas the aston even with the same sort of power and um horsepower and torque uh specs it's just it's far more subdued and and going even to slightly extra legal gives you all the sort of sensory uh experience that you might want it's make great noise and it feels planted and it it just it feels right at 75 or 80 miles an hour instead of you know 130 Right, uh, which right. is what the M5 is constantly asking you. It's begging you to do it. Right. Yeah. Well, you've talked about the the restoration of the 912 a few times, and I've I've been meaning to ask. I mean, it's been through paint. The green is unreal. It looks so gorgeous in photos. I can only imagine what it looks like in person. Um. Yeah. It just made a journey across the states, if I'm not mistaken. Has it landed yet in California for its motor? This is me. This is me actually looking at my watch um, because it is supposed. This is a uh, yeah. It's actually supposed to be landing today. Okay. In Anaheim, so it was picked up late last week in in Huntington Station, New York, where uh, Peter Potzinger uh, and Adam and Pete and and Stephen from his crew did such an amazing job over the last several years taking that car apart. Um, stripping it, fixing rust, welding, patching, rebuilding, <laughs> and then rust proofing and painting this car and then reassembling it. It is, it's concourse condition right now, which frankly, it, it scares me because I'm going to just drive this car and uh, it's, it's way nicer than I need. Um, but it just speaks to the level of, of quality craftsmanship that these guys do. So uh, it took a long time, but it was worth it. It is absolutely stunning. And so now any minute it should be dropped off in Anaheim with John Benton at Benton Performance, who's got a uh, a little twin spark conversion that he did on my motor uh, waiting for it. And he's going to do some other stuff to it um, from the suspension, build a custom exhaust and custom interior that I'd spec'd out a bunch of odds and ends. And then I'm, I'm going to have him tune it and tweak it and break it in for me. And then the goal uh, is to go get it in September and drive it back. Oh, incredible. Well, um, if your girlfriend's not involved, uh, I'd love to ride shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I had originally come up with this idea when, um, well, let's just, I was between relationships. <laughs> and so I had originally expected this cross country journey to be this sort of, um, you know, mind clearing yeah. walkabout thing. I was going to do it solo and then actually have a few people join me for little legs here and there. Um, and I started dating this great girl who, um, well, that's, she's, she's wonderful in all ways, but also she, uh, she's stalled the Aston Martin fewer times than I have. 
So she, she knows what she's doing. She grew up nice. riding dirt bikes and I think she's going to make one hell of a co-pilot. So we are going to do the journey together, but, Oh, that's amazing. I think we're going to do a send off, um, in LA, um, in September at, at the, uh, the motoring club. Oh, nice. When we have some dates. Yeah. 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 We'll have to get together. I've been talking about having Andrew on the show for months and months and, um, oh, he's a great guy. Yeah. So we're, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll connect in LA. And if you need me to run up to Anaheim and take a temperature, I'd be happy to do that for you. <laughs> hey, I, I, that's, you're welcome to. And, and John, John Benton is, is such a sweet guy. He really knows his trade craft. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've asked him to go put some paint like dings in it for me. Right. Just so you don't feel bad. <laughs> like Pete, Pete's paint job was so good. I mean, it's single stage Irish green. It's, it's wet. Yeah. I was going to say it looks wet. Yeah. 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 It's magnificent. Um, and, uh, it, it's better than I asked for. It's better than I needed. It's spectacular. Well, I mean, I, I there's no way you're going to do this, but. I'm only thinking of preservation. Any reason why you'd PPF it? Uh, oh, yeah. I definitely will on the hood. And Oh, you are? Okay, good. Behind it, yeah. I mean, I've been looking into the ceramic coating stuff, but I don't know. If, if you guys know anything about the pros and cons of ceramic coating, go ahead and drop me an Instagram message because I don't know what to do here. I mean, vinyl is ugly, but it works. And so if ceramic is really that great, let's hear it. I Okay, so my buddy Wes owns elite finish car detailing here in San Diego. And, um, I'll connect you to, cause he, he'll sell you on something to, to help you like genuinely, like, so that it, the baby's taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'm going to do is drive this thing into the desert. So, right. Yes. Yeah, sand and, and, and pebbles. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Because I mean, even just wind sweeping across a freeway, is it could be nightmarish. Um, what, what's cool about single stage paint is that, you know, you do get a chip or a ding, you can just fill it and off it in. It doesn't have any, you know, it's not, uh, doesn't have metallic flake. It doesn't have a clear coat, you know, as long as it's not, you know, real dot damage, you can, you can spot fill it and buff it out. And that's how these cars used to be painted. Sure. Um, they did such a great job in preserving that sort of original idea. Um, of course, in California, you know, the paint fades pretty quickly in the sun. Yeah. But, you know, listen, I live in I live in the Northeast. It's going to live in a garage most garage. of the time. I don't yeah. think I have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll connect you with Wes, though, for sure. He'd love to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, just wrapping up here, man. By the way, congrats on the new Doxa release that, as I'm assuming, sold out long, long. I mean, was it minutes, hours, two days? Yeah. Well, so what happened was... Um, there was not a lot of these things to go around. We only made a hundred. Uh, we wanted to make sure that there were a few available in each of our points of sale here in the U S a few available in Europe, in the UK. I had some mine sold out in minutes. Uh, and then because they were still coming through customs, it did actually take, I think it was like two days or maybe three to sell out everywhere, but it was not that uh, we didn't have them all online. They would have all sold out online in a minute. Right. But because we had them sent to stores and stuff and it was a weekend, people came in and um, we launched it on Thursday and they were all gone by, you know, close the business on, on at the end of the weekend. That's awesome, man. Thank um, you. It was a it was a passion project for sure. I'm, I'm so glad that the reaction was what it was. And, you know, I, I'd like to say it's uh, the customers loved it. Instagram loved it. 
the press and media loved it. And there's like a dozen pages of vitriolic hate being spewed on the forums. So I think I did it right. Really? Well, what does the hate consist of? Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's too expensive. Uh, why'd they oh, make it God. out of ceramic? Uh, why is there an orange, you know, fish on the crown? You know, silly things uh, being written by, by people, I guess, who just need to find something to hate on. Um, it comes from a very passionate collector community. Uh, that's how I came to it from. And I believe me, I'm not, I'm not bothered by that. I, I was just sort of poking fun at the fact that, you know, you know, you've done it right. If you've incurred the wrath of the, the internet. Yeah. 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 No, I, I tend to agree. Who was responsible for the design? Well, I, I worked on it, um, with the folks at Doxa to be clear, I didn't design this watch in, in that traditional sense. It's, it's an homage to a piece that was made in the late sixties. Um, I did have a fair amount of input into it. We went through several iterations to make sure we got it just right. Um, and you know, I, I do get to sort of, uh, say that I had a hand in it and, and that, that feels really, really good. Sweet. My good buddy, Thomas, who works with uh, Warren and Wound, he uh, he he texted me the question of of Do you think there will be a modern Doxa Army interpretation? Does he mean would there be a watch that would potentially be issued to uh, Switzerland special forces today that Doxa makes? That's a good question. I I mean I hope so. Well, is there anything else that you uh, you wanted to talk about or promote? Not really, man. I, I just, I'm just keep doing me. Um, you know, Love for it. for those of you listening who who don't already follow me, you can follow uh, my company at, at Analog Shift. Uh, and if you uh, like to look at cars and and uh, pictures of my dog, you can follow me at uh, James Lambden on Instagram. Um, but yeah, we we just do cool stuff over here, and uh, every once in a while, I get to break out of my uh, my watch hat and talk cars with my buddy Wesley. So yeah, that's yeah. a good day for me. Yeah, sweet, man. Well, obviously, I'm always thrilled to have you on and, and see your face, let alone talk. But um, I would encourage anybody and everybody to to sign up for an appointment to see your office because it's awesome. It's just fun. Got a nice little sitting area there. It, it's just a very welcoming environment. I've, I've been a couple of times and can't can't say enough about it. It's super cool. So you guys need to, to check that out. How do you schedule an appointment? Through the website? Well, you just... No, well, there's a guy sitting downstairs in an AMC Eagle. Talk to him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can't miss it. That's, that's uh, no, amazing. Just uh, yeah, shoot us an email uh, through our website or just directly to info at analogshift.com. Cool. And if you're afraid of Panthers, don't go there in a month. <laughs> <laughs> or Or bears. Or bears. Yeah, yeah. If you're not one for the zoo, stay away from the analog shift office. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, we do have some animals. We do have some animals in here. It's it's. it's uh... All right. Well, James, thanks so much, dude. It's Thank you, brother. It's great to be back. Great to be back. Back. That was yeah, super man. fun. Thanks, James. We'll see you later. later right. Bye. Hey guys, Wesley here. If you liked what you heard, maybe tell a friend about the Standard Age podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover this podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Take care.